This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. But it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. It is 5pm in the city of London. I'm Guy Johnson joining you in the UK capital. Alex Steele over in the Big Apple in New York. Uh, this is The Cable, as I say. We've got lots to talk about. Copper's under a little bit of pressure. We've got an Airbus deal uh, with Boeing in terms of state subsidies. That's more about China. We'll discuss that a little bit later on with Brooks Sutherland. Uh, we should also talk about what is happening in the European bond market. Huge amount of demand for the inaugural 10-year post-pandemic recovery bond issued by the EU. Alex, it's a busy day pre-Fed. Yeah, it is. And here in the U.S., after those retail sales and PPI, um, we're trying a little heavy on the equity market. Um, it feels like we're still in a wait-and-see mode. Yields doing nothing, dollar doing nothing. But we're definitely trading heavy in the equity market. Uh, commodities kind of bringing us down there uh, in terms of the copper market. Yep. Let's recap it all. Let's do Let's it. Let's pull it all together. We, got a, 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 we are honored today to have Doug Krisner with us. I don't know that I can pull it Best all together. Best voice in the business. Well, yeah. But I want to pick up on the European bond market story that you were talking about, Guy. I'm sure you're well aware that the European Union is now temporarily blocking 10 banks from taking part in bond sales. This would be under the EU's pandemic debt issuance program. The EU needs this time. It's still assessing the bank's previous breaches of antitrust rules. And the list will include, or does include, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Bank of America, and Barclays. You were talking about the weakness in uh, the equity market. We do have uh, real estate leading the decline in the S&P. It's down from a record high now by about three-tenths of one percent. The Dow weaker by a half of one percent. NASDAQ comp coming in by a little more than six-tenths of one percent. The retail sales number was disappointing, a decline in the month of May of 1.3%. But the data seems to suggest that consumers are shifting more spending to services and away from goods. I'm sure you'll be talking about that phenomenon. Factory output up in the month of May after pausing a bit in April and producer prices up more than expected in the month of May. On an annualized basis, PPI was up 6.6%. That's the largest increase we've seen in data going back to 2010. Ten-year Treasury, Alex is absolutely right. We're very little changed here, just under 1.50%. That is a quick look at what's going on in some of the headlines and market action as well. All right. Thank you so much, Doug Krisner, uh, for that. But, you know, Guy, to your point, I also did find um, the European bond uh, uh, book completely fascinating, how oversubscribed it is, et cetera. And I really do wonder, what is going to be the availability for Europe to really make that a competitor to the Treasury market? It's obviously going to take a while to do that, but that could be a very interesting development and give a lot of investors alternatives uh, to a very illiquid, say, bond market. Yeah, it was definitely priced to go. The search for yield is absolutely massive. You saw that in terms of the order book, which was huge. The offering significantly larger than anticipated, coming through at kind of circa 20 billion euros. Um, it had a positive yield, mm -hmm. uh, which, which in this day and age here in Europe um, is, a, is a novelty, particularly for a AAA-rated uh, bond that, that you can use as collateral just as much as you can use a bund. Marcus Ashworth is the man to talk to about all of this. Uh, we'll get his take on the, the wider markets in just a moment. Marcus, what was your takeaway from from this launch? I, it was it was going to go well. It was priced to go. What was your what was your message? 
Yeah, well, interesting. It was priced to go because you look at uh, comparable bond issued by the EU for their sure job support program uh, back in October. I mean, it, that's trading at, at mid-swaps minus seven. This thing came at minus two. So there's still five basis points of of play. It's the reason why there's a lot of wider interests. But the other point, I think, it's just fascinating to see that a, a rich seven basis points in yields for the next 10 years, um, there is such a large amount of demand. There is such a captive audience of euros, which cannot go anywhere, it seems, other than into funding uh, the euro system, which is um, just as well, I suppose. But um, yes, the order book was you know, very large and seven times it looks fantastic. It wasn't technically the largest book ever, though. It was funny enough, the one I mentioned earlier was three billion more, 145 billion. But it was the largest ever sovereign or, or supranational uh, or agency bond ever issued in the globe. And that is quite an extraordinary opening gambit from the European Union. They have got their uh, money raising. Um, spree off to, off to allow bang. Um, who's buying it? Who isn't buying it? Um, uh. Uh, I think anyone of a central bank or reserve management nature across the world who needs to be parked in euros, doesn't want to be just in bunts, will be diversifying out of it. I think uh, that goes across uh, in, into Europe as well. All the various different institutions need to own high-quality collateral, be it to you know, against derivatives or for whatever else it may be, if you need to hold top quality collateral, um, why not get an extra few basis points and otherwise the bunts would offer you. Diversification, um, bear in mind that this one isn't a green bond, but there'd be lots of other green bonds coming down the pipe, and it's good to be involved in these things to start off with. And it's, um, you know, look, it, it's, it's something which is a, a new entity, and it's a, yep. everyone likes to support something which is coming they, they need to build a curve. They need to do all kinds of other things. But is this going to supplant the Bund? No. It does have a curve. You know, there's already there's 100 and, well, now 162 billion worth of issuance from the European Union. Slight subtle differences I mentioned before. Some are sure bonds, which, for instance, would click, click the S in ESG as social. Um, so they might trade slightly richer. When these green bonds come from the EU, they might trade slightly richer as well. But the, you know, the point is, is that this is, this is the first and closest thing we've got to a euro bond. Now, it's not joint and severally liable. Uh, we'll get into that too much. But basically, it means is that individual countries aren't on the hook for this, though, in effect, they really are, because it's mm -hmm. the European Union, isn't it? So in that sense, it's going to create a, an, an alternative to bunts. But until we get to the close to one trillion euros worth of issuance out there, I don't think it will rival uh, Bunds quite yet. But it's certainly a, you know, important new cousin, should we call it? Um, talk about the green issuance in it. How much is in there? What was the take up on that? Like, how significant is that part? Well, well that no, that the green issuance will be thirty percent or so of the overall program. Okay. We won't start getting green EU issue bonds until I yeah. think later this year. What do you make of this this punitive action that's being taken by the EU regarding these ten primary dealers? Absolutely uh, extraordinary. Bear in mind this is this should have been done by the regulators, European Central Bank, not by a suddenly now very powerful issuer. Um, it's uh, going to benefit greatly the banks that are not being um, treated this way. You could argue it's double jeopardy in the sense that they've already been fined these banks and hung out to dry, perhaps not stiffly enough. But for this one-off sort of a random um, action, which they kept on the radar, it's actually been out since uh, 
um, late last week, but it's 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 one of these things that's only just sort of snuck out, should we say, to everyone's um, a, a not acknowledgement. And it's you know how do you get back onto their list? Who determines? It should be the regulator, surely, how they get back on the list. Um, it's it's not a very great sign for European capital markets if you know you're telling uh, banks around the world that you're going to get fined like this and or treated in a in, a, in effectively a, a non-reward basis. Um, at, you know, to encourage people to come across to Europe, um, there is they will still be doing the or allowed into the primary dealer process, but that takes a lot of capital, and the reward for that is normally getting into the syndicated issues. So it's uh, quite an arbitrary move. Um, it would be a great sign if it was coordinated, done by the regulator, and well communicated. But as it's not, I think it smacks of all of a sudden we're powerful, and it's political overreach. <laughs> Um, that's why I love Marcus. He just says it like it is. Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Opinion. You're going to be sticking with us. We have more to talk about, particularly uh, European stocks at record highs. Uh, who would have thought a couple years ago? But then again, I've heard this story before, Guy. I've heard this story for many, many, many years. Many, 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 many years. Many times. Yeah. Um, I, I, I had yeah. long hair when I first started hearing, hearing about this story. So that just tells you something. I have no idea where that was, but let's assume it was a while You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, London. I'm Alex Steele. with with Guy Johnson. Um, eight days. It's been eight days of record highs for European stocks. Although it does still feel relatively muted, but interesting today because the U.S. equity market's trading a bit heavy. Markets Ashworth, a Bloomberg Opinion, uh, still with us. You surprised? Do we continue this run? Is this time different? It's a rocket ship. I mean, what's not to love? I mean, it's it's <laughs> easily squeezable, and um, look, there's no entity, no end in sight to, to to this at the moment. You know, we've got um, continued uh, largesse from central banks, and uh, they see no ships or no inflation in sight for them. Um, so for the moment, uh, things are, are set fair. Are you a transitory or you were not transitory? I am most definitely transitory in, in, in every sense. Uh, <laughs> uh, in I'm the trying to really the think of this. Yeah. No, I, this, is, this is just natural snapback from a, a bunch of stuff, and I think that's... Uh, all to be expected, and uh, I, I, I totally get, um, I totally get that there is, uh, you know, fears, and we should be totally on, on, on looking and checking and making sure all in, instances. But they, they've got to make this work, and I think they've got to, they've got to see through what is an obvious snapback, and, and uh, you know, after a really sharp, really unusual type of recession, where there's nothing, there was nothing broken per se. I mean, I know European. Germany and Italy, particularly, were about to slide into recession. But by that, there was nothing broken. All of a sudden, bang, it was. And therefore, bang, it's fixed again. Um, you're going to get um, all sorts of troubles. Everyone agrees with you. Like the fund manager survey in Bank of America, for example, 72% said that they expect uh, inflation to be transitory. So they're saying, yep, good growth. Fed's going to be real slow and taper. It'll be really orderly. And uh, you have a transitory inflation. And go ahead, buy commodities, cyclicals, and materials. I mean, that makes me nervous. One sided boat always tips over. And I don't even sail. So, and I know that. Well, you know, that's that's true. It's taken quite a while to come through to, to tell the bond market that. But 
you know, there's an awful lot of technical stuff going on in the bond market, particularly, and it really is about U.S. Treasuries, and the rest of the bond markets in the world are really following U.S. Treasuries. We've seen it with the Treasury Journal account running the Fed's balance down, uh, the Treasury's balance down the Fed. It's pushed money into the market. That's what's counteracted the inflation scare, which in turn was caused by, you know, I won't go into other technical things, but there's been a lot of money sloshing around the system, which has caused some very confusing signs. So um, it's hard to know. Um, really what to believe, other than just the simple thing, don't fight the Fed. The Fed aren't worried, nor should you be. And I I, I appreciate that looks rather silly. (laughs) But the point is, is that, you know, there are a lot of Cassandras out there. I'd like to see a lot more evidence of wage inflation, proper feed through to productivity, wage inflation, lower labor position rates, participation rates, uh, you know, high ones, right? And and then indeed, you know, much lower U6 numbers before I get too scared. I tell you where you are seeing inflation, that is in UK holidays. Marcus, I always appreciate your political nous. Um, is Boris Johnson doing the right thing at the moment? When do you think you'll be going on another foreign holiday? Well, there's another 71%. Uh, that's what the amount of people in this country seem to think he's doing the right thing. Um, one of them not being my eldest son, but that's another story. Um, I, I think they are trying their best to uh, hide up a, a, perhaps an oversight, with, particularly with India, um, in April. Um, we've got ourselves in a very difficult situation, but I think we're getting on top of it. Then, you know, they're really, after all this pain, misery, and, and, and absolutely appalling suffering, to an extra three or four weeks without really, you know, materially affecting many people's lives terribly, I think is a smart thing to do. And most of the country, I think, is with, uh, is with the government on this one. They don't want to do it. They're sort of having to do it. And then I think they are prepared to take the leap, which is, run with, with COVID, um, you know, in, in the system as long as it's at a manageable level, which is a horrible thing to have to do, but there's any other way of doing it. And we want to open up in the summer. We want to open up when people aren't going back to school. It's June. Wait, to, yeah, but aren't we in the summer? I mean, I appreciate your weather stinks over there, but still. It's been sunny this weekend. Well, we, there, is, okay. <laughs> there is sometimes more than, 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 than just June. Not always, but no, I, I think, <laughs> July, I think the month maybe. of July when the kids are off school are important to be open. Okay, Marcus, always appreciate your analysis. Thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg's Marcus Ashworth. Up next, we're going to talk about that deal between the US and the EU on Boeing Airbus subsidies. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. It has taken 17 years for a truce to be found between the EU and the US over subsidies to Boeing and Airbus. We are finally there. An agreement was reached earlier on. It is a huge moment. Um, President Biden describing this as a as a model for the way that the EU and the US can tackle their fight against China. Basically, what he's saying is, why are we fighting each other when the bigger threat comes from China in the form of COMAC? So is this going to be the model? Are we finally going to be teaming up with the United States? Because there is a bigger economic threat on the horizon in the form of Chinese industry. Well, Alex and I earlier caught up with Valdis Dombrovsky. Uh, he is the European Commission's Executive Vice President. Indeed, it's a good news that uh, we are uh, finally uh, grounding this uh, Airbus-Boeing uh, dispute, which was uh, with us for some uh, 16, 17 uh, years. And uh, we agreed now on a 
cooperative framework, how we are going to cooperate in the area of large civil aircraft, and among other things, how we will be addressing uh, challenges posed by non-market uh, economies. Uh, so, in, uh, uh, so indeed, it uh, shows that uh, EU and uh, US is uh, willing uh, to work together not only uh, to resolve our bilateral uh, disputes, but also uh, thinking about global level playing field and international fair and rules-based trading system. Commissioner, is this, you're basically saying that this is a recognition that COMAC is coming and that China is pushing COMAC very hard and that may not be a market-based phenomenon. That's what you're basically saying, isn't it? Isn't it? Is this a prelude to the US and the EU jointly launching a, a, a grievance at the WTO against China for the development of aircraft at Comang? Uh, well, uh, what is uh, important in the area of large uh, civil aircraft is to ensure a level playing field. Uh, we had been uh, having this dispute uh, between us for many uh, years, and so finally uh, we are uh, settling uh, this one. But uh, still, we need also the level playing field uh, globally. So what we are agreeing to do today is uh, to work uh, to, uh, towards this and to the extent possible ensure that there is a level playing field uh, globally. And this is not the only uh, initiative we are launching uh, today. We today also announced a launch of Trade and Technology Council, where EU and US will uh, uh, cooperate in the area of new and emerging technologies on uh, digital economy, on mm. international standard setting, just to give some examples. That was Valdis Dombrovskis, uh, European Commission Executive Vice President. Guy, he literally would not say the word China. Uh, he did at one point, but it was a because hard we reframed to get the there. question. But like yes. in terms of this deal, not going to take that bite. Yeah, and and basically, I think the Europeans are worried about their lack of unanimity on China. Mm -hmm. Germany takes a very different approach, particularly when it comes into the U.S. Um, and and EU. So uh, Brooke Sutherland is Bloomberg Opinion, and she knows pretty much everything about everything, but in particular, an expert on airlines. And Brooke, when you take a look at the Airbus and Boeing situation, I mean. Does that have anything to do with something else other than China? I mean, how, how important is it in terms of China? I think it's important. I mean, I, I think the thing to keep in mind is that China does not currently at the present moment have a viable competitor to what Boeing and Airbus can offer. But I don't know if in the long term that really matters because, um, you know, when you look at where a significant amount of the demand for new planes is going to come from, quite a lot of it is going to come from China. And so even if, you know, the eventual COMAC models are, are not the product of choice for U.S. or European airlines, uh, as long as you have the Chinese airlines, you know, being very interested in buyers in those jets, that, that creates a real problem for Boeing and Airbus. Uh, I also think you know, part of this is just a realization that this feud was getting very long in the tooth and was starting to look increasingly ridiculous uh, and was hurting both Boeing and Airbus. Um, and, you know, I, I just think there's a point where you have to ask yourself, is the only winner here really the lawyers that are, are prolonging this? That's always uh, the correct answer. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. Or, or the tax they guys. Usually seem, they usually seem to win this one. But, um, yes, I mean, and I think especially having gone through the pandemic, uh, obviously these two companies have much bigger issues right now. And the government stepped in to really support, um, you know, a variety of different industries through the COVID-19 pandemic. So to be yeah. mired in a dispute about who subsidized what aircraft when, 
it feels a little, uh, you know, not where we should be prioritizing our interests right now. How different are aircraft economics without subsidies? You know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens without that, especially as we get into this next generation where both, you know, Boeing and Airbus are thinking yep. about introducing more environmentally friendly. Okay, well, aircraft. yeah, that, that's kind of where that's- where I wanted this to go. Can 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 we take the aerospace industry into a more sustainable position without government support? I think it depends on how you define government support, right? Because, yeah. the, you know, we didn't have a direct um, loan from the U.S. government to Boeing because the Fed stepped in and provided that backstop. And, and Boeing didn't have to lend money to the U.S. or sorry, take money from the U.S. government or, or give it an equity stake. So I, I think there's shades of gray here in terms of what this looks like. And, you know, obviously we do have subsidies in the U.S. for electric car production. So could that conceivably extend to planes? Mm-hmm. I think that's certainly a, a fair question in a debate that will play out over the next couple of years. In theory, who gets the benefit? Like, does Boeing help get, help make more profit? Or are we going to see it on the consumer level? Does that get pushed through to airlines, to consumers? Like, what, do we know how that divides itself? In terms of subsidy? Yeah, just in terms of the benefit. Like, oh, great, this aircraft would have cost me 10 bucks to make, but now it only cost me 8 But, like, who's going to eat that 2 bucks? No. So, it's, I mean, it's really more on the development front. I mean, these are big programs. They're very expensive. They take a lot of time. Obviously, people don't always get them right, as we've seen with Boeing uh, repeatedly with the 737 MAX and, you know, the issues they had with the Dreamliner. Um, And so, you know, it's not necessarily that it plays into discounts for airlines or, you know, lower ticket prices for passengers. It's really about that upfront cost, which is extremely substantial. But, you know, at this point, Both Boeing and Airbus are established companies with access to the capital markets. And so, you know, do they need the government to support it as as much as they they maybe did in the past? Yeah, interest rates are pretty low right now. Uh, Brooke, thank you very much indeed, as ever. Uh, Brooke Sutherland on what the, uh, the EU and the US have agreed today in terms of a subsidy truce for Airbus and Boeing. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, City of London. I'm Alex Steele in New York. It is just 12.30 for me, but 5.30 where you are. Maybe it's uh, pint time, maybe not. We'll see. Um, So the divergence between U.S. and Europe. Europe, on the one hand, you have record highs for equities. Uh, Here in the U.S., stocks are declining from those uh, all-time highs. You're looking to drop in retail sales. Well, you could say because the revisions upward for the previous two months were kind of bang in line with where the recovery should be. Producer prices rising a bit, but then you get copper, lumber prices off their highs now, so maybe dampening some of that inflation pressure. All of that uh, ahead of the Federal Reserve. Hey, look at this. Governor Cuomo is lifting New York pandemic limits. Seventy percent of the population has now been vaccinated. Guy, this is huge and very different. What does that mean for you? Uh, Nothing. Okay. Um, I still don't. I mean, I could do more stuff, but like, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I stay outside. I don't eat inside yet. I'm good. But hey, I'll take it. It It feels like a big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. Very big deal. Um, It's also a big deal because that's not what we've got. Yeah, but again, like, what, what can't you do that you'd want to do? Um, I think certainly the indoor restrictions are still fairly fairly tight. Meaning that um, like, you can't go out to eat. 
You can go out to eat okay. inside. I ate in a pub the other day. Uh, you can do it, but table sizes are fairly restricted. So it, it, there are you can do what you want, but in 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 moderation, basically, mm-hmm. which probably is a good thing anyway. Right. I was going to say it's probably better. It's probably better. I'm spending less money eating out. Let, let's be clear. Um, okay. And all of this is ahead of the really big uh, day tomorrow for the Fed. We got retail sales numbers out. Producer price index we talked about. Let's get to Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. Um, okay, Mike. So I used to buy things like curtains, shoes, dresses, um, and couches and things. And now I'm getting massages and things like that. Am I emblematic of what we saw in retail sales? Uh, well, you're emblematic of what we think is going on in retail sales. Uh, the Fed is watching to see the composition of sales, and we bought a lot of goods. You bought a lot of goods during I did. the lockdowns. I did. I did. Um, and now people are maybe going back to services, and obviously, as states open up and more services are available, they'll be taking advantage of that. The interesting thing about retail sales is we're looking at the month to month changes, which are actually. Um, kind of volatile because they're revised heavily. And we saw a big revision to the April number from 0 to 0.9 to almost 1% gain. So the drop wasn't as big as people think it was or it appears to be, plus the fact that retail sales are running ahead of well ahead of where they were before the pandemic began. It's the one category that's, uh, well, I put housing in that too, that that has been really strong. So at this point, uh, Americans have money to spend and they're spending it. If you're the Fed and you're looking at the data that's coming through at the moment, how much signal can you take away from what appears to be a series of very noisy data series that... I don't think we fully understand the implications of yet. I, there is this debate around transitory, whether or not the inflation we're seeing at the moment. I, we are seeing an aggressive reopening from a pent-up population, and we still don't understand kind of how long it's going to last. Can the Fed, is the Fed in a position to make big decisions at the moment? No, they're not, which is a reason they don't want to. Uh, one or two data points don't make uh, trend. And so the Fed is going to look at the numbers we got today, the retail sales numbers, and anticipate that they will remain reasonably strong. But they also know that no more stimulus checks are coming. And people who are getting the enhanced unemployment benefits will start to lose those. So maybe we see a little bit of a drop off in retail sales. Uh, Do we see a drop off in services? That's to be determined. Then you look at the PPI numbers. Well, they're, they're going up, which is exactly what the Fed predicted. But they're going up more than expected. So is that what they thought? Uh, it's it's kind of hard to get a true picture. But uh, I noticed, Alex, uh, on, mm-hmm. your, uh, on telly today, mm-hmm. you were making a big deal out of the drop in copper. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the kind of thing the Fed really is looking at because it, we've seen house prices going up because – Construction materials were very expensive, but lumber is plunged, copper's going down. Those are the two biggest inputs to any housing. So if that's the case, then the Fed is looking at some better news, something that follows their forecast. Fair enough. Um, my other question is, are we too complacent, though? I understand what you're saying from an economic sense, and I've talked about this all day also as a fund manager survey from Bank of America, where everyone's just super chill about everything. Growth is good. Inflation's transitory. Fed's going to be great. We're, we're all chill. I mean, uh, that makes me nervous. It makes a lot of people nervous because, of course, the old saying is stocks rise on a wall of worry. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of worry. Which I feel like they've point. been doing for there, like a decade. There, there is a point. class of people who think that we are going to see 
an outbreak of inflation. And so you have some people mm-hmm. making that argument, which uh, is it keeps everybody thinking. But you're right. Most people think that we're in a sort of a Goldilocks moment until we see what happens the rest of the summer. And uh, right now, uh, it's hard to argue one way or the other. Um, in terms of what is going to happen next, just what we... If, if we were going to get any kind of a hawkish signal from the Fed tomorrow, which which I think a lot of people don't expect, but I'm just what I'm curious is the sequencing. What am I listening for tomorrow in terms of an understanding of how this process is going to slowly kind of work its way through the system? Well, it's kind of interesting because the normal hawkish, dovish uh, way you'd look at things is sort of suspended at the moment. If the Fed were to suggest they were going to start tapering, uh, then that would seem to be a little hawkish and it would slow the economy down, but it would also bring inflation down. Um, and would it have a big effect on interest rates? That's the, the hard thing to tell. Uh, so I think what you'd look at is the statement on inflation, whether they mm-hmm. say anything more than it is running at about what we expected. Uh, anything stronger than that, or if the dot plot moves, especially if the, somebody moves from 2023 to, to 2022 in terms of int- interest rate hike. I suspect that uh, the rest of the script plays out almost as scripted because Jay Powell's not going to want a, a, a big move in the market, so yeah. he might say they start talking about it, but not... No. Here's my question. And Guy, I don't know if you know this, but Mike has a reputation of having the hardest question at the press conference. So like if, I, if, yep. if that's he, why he never gets to ask it. If he stands yeah. up, yeah. like literally people turn up the sound. What's your question? Uh, I have yet to come up with a really good question. One thing that's been no pressure. Uh, that I would it, like. Does to, it involve the money market? Yeah. Ah, um, <laughs> we know we'll probably get asked about it. All depends on who asks what ahead of me. But I am curious when they're going to start meeting in person again. Now that hmm. we're reopening instead of uh, doing virtual uh, and. I wonder if I'll be going back to Washington for a press conference anytime soon, <laughs> or if it's all going to remain virtual. It's, uh, so he's not actually standing up at the moment. It's just a kind of it is selecting Mike's window. Mike's yes, right. true, 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 and yeah. like unmuting. I can't wave him. my hand and say, "Call on me, call on yeah. me." Yeah, but that is your that is your reputation, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not actually making that up. No, I, that's a thing. Yeah, I get I get in trouble. <laughs> then you know you're actually doing your job correctly. Um, all right, Mike, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Bloomberg's Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent. Um, I, I know it's going to be reading tea leaves and really digging through the details, Guy, but um, I do think that there are a lot of nuances tomorrow that are going to be quite interesting, especially when it seems to be a lot of consensus in, in some capacity on how we're looking at inflation. I'm British. I'm always ready to read the tea leaves. That's something that I'm very yes. much up for doing. Ah, uh, yeah. I like the espresso grinds. I'll do espresso grinds. Though, I'll, I'll read. Oh, what? You can't read those. I, they tell you nothing. You literally read tea leaves. Tea leaves? Yeah, you've got to read the tea leaves. This is Bloomberg. <laughs> this is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable Live on DAV Digital Radio. I fancy I'm just going to disappear now and make a cup of tea. I've got to basically just say a few words and and that'll pretty much sort out my next few minutes. Alex, (laughs) copper's down by 4.2%. Yes. 
Yes, it is. It's very exciting. Um, okay, so there's a couple things, and this is when guys are going to go get that cup of tea. Um, there's a couple things going on in the copper market. One is that we had seen some, seen some signs of some physical uh, demand weakening just a few weeks ago. Uh, things like premiums in different areas of China were coming down a little bit. Um, Shanghai storage was kind of moving higher. Those are all like the tea leaf signs of, oops, we have some demand rolling over a little bit. Um, there was also some suggestion that maybe China would uh, try and sell some metal into the market because they wanted to depress some prices. That really applies more to things like steel or tin, maybe. Um, and then there's the whole, like, we just ran too far, too fast, and that's now seeing some demand destruction. Like, I'm not going to go buy a car, for example, because it's just too expensive right now, and I don't want to pay for the extra inflation, which would then have reverberating effects. A guy, I personally just think that we're just in a little bit of a, a, a snooze fest for the copper market, and that it will continue to bounce back. I, I, have I, didn't, yet- I don't think a 4% move in copper is a snooze fest. Um, I think I, I meant more like we could see soft copper prices for a little bit. Like, they could be okay. snoozy. Um, but I find it hard to make the case for a bearish move in copper based on the fundamentals of demand and yeah, the you, issues you around wait, supply. You want to plug a, st- a lot of stuff in, you're going to need some cables. End of story. Like, that's, just, kind of, that's, that's all you need to know, really, to be honest, isn't it? Like, if you just take it from that angle, like, you don't even have to, have to have to add any of the other stuff in there. Like, literally, if you have an EV, you have to plug it in. Like, we're all going to become these little mini utilities. And if you need to do that, then we need to have a grid. And the grid needs to be upgraded, like, full stop. Um, I think where it gets interesting, though, is where that supply is going to come from and how it's going to come from places. Like, copper mines are much cleaner than other types of mines, but they're still a mine. There's still issues you have to deal with. There's still the power problem. There's still the water usage, et cetera. And when copper prices are high, any metal is high. The countries where you operate want more of a piece of that. So then all of a sudden taxes go up. And that's going to discourage a lot of the mining that may be in store. Hence, probably higher prices. Yeah, but it's going to be interesting to see how China leans in on this. I think that I, it, it used to be, certainly in the last cycle, it was China that basically controlled the narrative. That doesn't feel like it's the case anymore. And that's going to pose China with a big problem. And I'm not sure. It'd be interesting to see what their tolerance is here. Um, well, I, I think we've seen it. I think that once we hit like, you know, copper 10,500 10, kind of thing, then you started to see it come off a little bit. But, you know, if we go down far enough, they'll just buy the dip. Like that's what they do in oil. Like they're, they're going to play differentials against each other. And then once they see opportunities, they're going to stockpile strategic reserves because they, they make their own stuff now. Like, they refine the copper themselves, but they still need the actual imported raw material. They don't do that there. So they have to. They don't have a choice. No. And a lot of it comes from Australia, which obviously the relations from a geopolitical point of view are getting more difficult. Exactly. Um, And I think we're going to see a UK trade deal signed with with, um, Australia tomorrow. It's going to be interesting to see. Um, whether or not some of this China narrative does come out in the conversation uh, that we're going to hear with the two prime ministers. Is that meaningful? Uh, Like, how much do I care about that? Like, do they trade a lot? Well, Australia's a long way away. Yes, that is I think that probably is the main thing you need to take away. There is a concern that we're going to be seeing the UK agricultural market being flooded. I'm not sure you can flood a market with, with sheep, but... But yeah, with with Australian beef and and lamb, uh, and that is that's of course a concern. But I, I'm sure that what we're going to see is a tapering here happening. Um, but but I guess the first point is France is not very far away. The European Union is not very far away. Australia is about as far as you can go, and it's not that these are not naturally 
consecutive markets, mm-hmm. but you can free stuff, you can ship it around the world, mm-hmm. and and you can you can therefore kind of have an impact. But it's not, this is not a huge, this is not a game changing trade deal. Yeah, so I, um, I didn't think so. I think it was like 005 percent, like twentieth trading partner. I was like, nah, okay, forget it, moving on. Yeah, I, we take the Australians seriously because they they occasionally are quite good at cricket and rugby and things like that. And they have but. nice beaches. They do, but there are lots of nasty, creepy crawlies and things like that. You really? Just worry about well, yeah, and things with big teeth. I don't like. It's that. always a problem. Okay. This is Bloomberg. This is the Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. What was really interesting when Guy and I were talking with Valdis Dombrovskis, um, he literally, as we mentioned before, would not say the word China in relation uh, to the Boeing and Airbus tariff dispute uh, being put on hiatus. Um, And right after that, excuse me, Guy and I talked to Michael Chertoff, um, former U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security, um, and we asked him, how do you view China as an adversary but then you also need their, their its cooperation in other things, like taxes and climate, for example. I think it does reflect the fact that some of the European nations have different views of China than, for example, we do or other countries. For example, Hungary has been doing quite a bit of business with China through the Belt and Road Initiative. Germany, as I think you may have said earlier in the show, has a little bit of a more mercantile attitude to China. The U.S., the U.K., and now France, I think, are more skeptical about Chinese technology and whether the Chinese will leverage their economic or technological power in order to advance political objectives. And therefore, we are more inclined to be careful about where we allow the Chinese to exert influence mm-hmm. and where we allow their technology to play a critical role. So I think that there's a, a general understanding China is a rival. But the degree to which we're concerned about national security issues does vary among members of the Atlantic Alliance. So is it going to be possible to apply the correct amount of pressure on China if the EU and the U.S. aren't 100 percent in the same book, on the same page? I think we'll get there because I think even if I look over the last couple of years, initially the alarms that were raised about Huawei being the technology provider for 5G as a national security risk. Those were originally disregarded in Europe. But over the last couple of years, the UK came along to basically restricting Huawei. France came along to doing that. A number of other European nations did. So I do think over a period of time, as people look at the facts, there'll be more of a convergence of views. It doesn't mean we have to be in unremitting hostility. But it does mean we need to be careful and judicious about impacts on our national security. Michael, let's turn our attention to what is happening with the meeting tomorrow with Vladimir Putin. How does President Biden push back, roll back, in the old Cold War terminology, um, what Russia is doing right now? What do you think needs to be achieved in that meeting? Well, first of all, we've seen Russia be very aggressive in cyber. We saw the SPR, the Russian Intelligence Service, behind a massive hack of solar winds, which basically embedded backdoors and vulnerabilities in literally thousands of networks that were using solar winds as, as a supply chain provider. The other thing the Russians have done is they have allowed criminal organizations 
to operate inside Russia as long as the victims are outside Russia. And the Russians do this in part in order to have a reservoir of reservists that they can call upon when they want to use them for national or state purposes. So we need to push back against that. We've used sanctions. Mm -hmm. We've used criminal indictments. They have been not particularly successful. And so I think the next step is to be clear to Vladimir Putin that we will take steps on our own to create effects on organizations that are carrying out cyber attacks in the U.S., whether they be state-sponsored or state-tolerated. So, Michael, in actuality, what does that look like? Like, what would be a win that then President Biden, who's not doing a press conference with President Putin, what, 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 is that, what does that look like? Well, you're not going to see a, a declaration of victory or mission accomplished coming out of this summit. What I, I do hope you do is you give Putin an understanding there's a, a new sheriff in town in Washington. It's not um, uh, Donald Trump who's going to go, oh, Vladimir Putin told me he's a great guy, so I believe him. It's going to be someone who's appropriately skeptical and understands what the American red lines are. It doesn't mean there aren't some areas of cooperation, for example, arms control and uh, similar areas, but it means we need to be clear-eyed. And I think that is the message that will come out of this summit. And it's not going to be a dramatic uh, reversal of the relationship we have now, but it may begin to check the erosion of norms that have allowed the Russians to be more aggressive over the last four years. Let's come back again, Michael, to this issue of how aligned Europe is with the United States when it comes to, this time, Russia. Again, Germany, more mercantile. We've got Nord Stream 2. Still haven't figured that out. Angela Merkel's going to Washington, hopefully, to find a solution. Again, how effective can the president's approach be if Europe is not unified? Well, first of all, if you go around Europe, you're going to find the vast majority of European nations are under no illusions about what Russia wants or doing business with the Russians. Go to Scandinavia, go to the Baltics, go to Central Europe, go to Eastern Europe. They, by and large, understand very clearly that Russia is aggressive, is overstepping in Ukraine. What they've done with Navalny uh, is really shocking, um, and not to mention poisoning somebody in the UK. So I think perhaps Germany is the only major European nation, perhaps Italy as well, that has a somewhat more ambivalent attitude to Russia. Hmm. And I think eventually they're also going to have to be realistic that Russia is not simply going to become a constructive member of the community of nations right. unless some stick that is used to get them to conform their behavior. That was Michael Chertoff, the former United States Secretary of Homeland Security. Alex, the president, is now in Switzerland ahead of that meeting with Vladimir Putin. I have to say, I, he's been at this for days now. I did two days at the G20. I worked pretty hard. <laughs> I was pretty tired. I came yeah. in on Monday morning. I, it, was, it was more than two days. But, but I was tired. The president must be absolutely whacked. Yep. Yep. And you have to wonder how um, Vladimir Putin's going to try and use that uh, to his advantage. It's no surprise that they're not going to do uh, a presser with both of them. And it's no surprise that it's being televised to be sort of four to five hours um, and sort of waiting to see if there are any blunders that then Putin can capitalize on. At least that's a cynic view uh, of the whole thing. I'm tired and I wasn't at Carby Bay. So, like, I mean, you know.
There's also that. This is the cable. It is the cable. This is a blue book. 